Welcome back to the award-winning Meet the Investigators podcast from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. I'm your host, Sean McGoey, and I'm an editorial fellow here at ICIJ. This month, we're bringing you a special audio treat from a recent event for ICIJ Insiders, so I'll hand things over to your guest host, our very own Sheila Alechi. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, my name is Sheila Alechi. I'm a reporter with the ICIJ. I also coordinate our partners in Asia and Western Europe. And today I'm going to talk to one of our dearest members, uh, Francisca Skoknich from Chile. Francisca is uh, one of the creators and the editor of Labot. And uh, we are going to talk about this um, very innovative uh, news organization in a minute. And until recently, she was the director of Diego, the Diego Portales University's Journalism School. She was also the deputy director of CIPER, which is uh, Chile's uh, investigative reporting center. And before joining CIPER, she worked for several publications in, in Chile covering politics. She won numerous awards for um, uncovering fraud and other wrongdoing. Uh, she is a member, but she also sits on ICIJ's committee that uh, selects uh, members. So thanks for joining us, Francisca. I wanted to know about your uh, beginnings, because I read that you grew up under Pinochet's uh, dictatorship. And I'm interested in knowing whether that contributed to your career choice. So why did you become an investigative reporter? Mostly my mother was a very good reader of newspapers. And in my family, current affairs were in the table, including politics and including all the Pinochet era. And there were some uh, alternative magazines that were covering what happened uh, during the dictatorship. So you were able to see different editorial lines and point of view that were very, very fascinating. Uh, some of the magazines were censored. Uh, sometimes the cover, they, they couldn't publish pictures in their covers. Uh, even the radio sometimes was uh, censored. So uh, it was a very crazy time to grow up, uh, but also um, it um, awoke some kind of interest of what, what is with the press, you know? But I think that mostly I studied journalism because I'm a curious person. And when you're a journalist, you have the privilege to be like discovering things every day, like for, for a work. Um, and to learn new things every day. So for me, that was the most uh, important thing to uh, to decide what to do. But but I since I was a child, I wanted to be a journalist. With my brother, when when we were all children, we we edited our own magazine uh, with the writing machine and drawings. I always wanted that. Mm -hmm. Is is there? Um a story that you remember from that time, maybe the first story that you covered as a junior journalist? Uh, the first story I covered, wow, I don't know. It was so, so long ago. But I think that uh, the most important to me, maybe, um, it wasn't the first, but it was the one that made me a journalist. I don't know if you remember that in 2004, the US, uh, US Senate Committee unveiled that um, uh, Pinochet had um, 
hidden bank account under fake names in the US. And also he had a small network of uh, offshore companies. So uh, when that was revealed, it was shocking because we knew he was a murderer, but we didn't know he also robbed. So um, the natural uh, thing to do in, in, a, in an outlet media is to think, okay, how do we report this here? Because all these things happen in the US. And uh, I started to dig on his properties. I worked in a magazine. I wasn't used to work with documents. Like I was doing interviews like traditional journalism. And suddenly I discovered that I could um, use document to dig and discover great things. And that time I discovered that um, he had transferred all his properties that were more that we knew back then uh, to a company in British Virgin Island. And he has been aided by um, army officers that were at that moment in very important roles in the army and prominent lawyers. Mm. And also he has an executor who was an expert to create offshore accounts. Um, so I learned all of that from documents in very uh, small archives mm -hmm. in different parts. And, and, and it was mind blowing um, to understand that if you really know where to search, you can uncover really important things. All this information was important for when he, when he was a judge. And, and I, so I, for, since then I started to use all these tools in my day-to-day -day work, and actually uh, now I teach them. Back then it was like all archived, now everything is digital. You have like database with all these documents, but, um, but it's what I teach right now to students uh, in, 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 in the journalism school and actually I create this course that's called the Journalist Toolbox and it's just what you need to know to search the right document that might help you to understand, to explain, to reveal something important. So what's in this toolbox? In this toolbox we have um, the property records how to read it, how to search it, because you probably know that everything is online, but it's not Googling, you know, you, it's a bit hidden, so you can search. Uh, so you need to know step by step how to cross this information in different websites. So in one website, you, you, have, you can find an identification number. With that number, you can, can go to the tax site, so you can have the number of the property and with that number you have you can go to the property record uh, so it's like a, a whole world when ev everything is attached but you know it's like a map i always always told my student that it's like a roadmap you need to know if you have this small information how can it help me to get the big picture so you mentioned this briefly, but when you covered the Pinochet offshore accounts, that was almost 20 years ago, let's say. And over the years, I mean, not much has changed in terms of criminals using offshore <laughs> to hide money, but journalism has changed and our ability to track that has changed. So can you talk a little bit about this evolution and how, how do you do that today? Yeah, I think that ICIJ has a lot to do uh, with 
how that evolved. Uh, my first contact with ICIJ was in 2012. Um, I was studying in the US and US universities have these long holidays. So I contact ICIJ and ask them that I have free time and I wanted to work with them. And it was difficult times for ICIJ, economic um, times. Only They have only, I, I think, three reporters. Uh, Marina and Gerard and two more people, and that was it. Um, so I went then a summer, and they had just received secret information about offshore companies. Uh, the question back then was, how do we search all this information? So I sat there with, with, during summer with a computer and a pen drive, and l just searching, like when you search uh, in a file now in, a, in your computer, like by keywords, um, uh, but it wasn't a structured data. It was l just like a hard drive, you know? And I was searching about uh, Latin American companies. Um, so it was uh, crazy and difficult because you, you, you don't have really good tool to understand how things were, were related and how to read things. And, but in the months after that, uh, ICAJ started developing um, a platform to search that. So, and, and that platform has been improved since then. So um, now uh, you have a very big, big, big database uh, in ICAJ that is searchable and it's online for the public and uh, everyone can uh, search and find what the links are with, between people in different, with different offshore companies. And if you're reporting something about someone, you go to the offshore leaks uh, website and you write the name of the person and you see, oh, this guy has this company in Cayman and this company in British Virgin Island that are related to. So uh, ICAJ has made uh, things much easier um, for journalists by making public all those enormous leaks. Panama Papers, offshore leaks, and well, all of that. And, and again, when you uh, were covering the Pinochet accounts, also in the US, you had to do it alone. What about collaboration? Have you been um, working with colleagues overseas a lot these days? Now, yes. Uh, back then, no, because it was difficult to communicate, but um, technology made it much easier. And now um, uh, it's very, very useful to have colleagues around the world uh, to which you can call and ask to uh, search information for you, to share what they know. It multiplies what you can do. Uh, when you work together with people with other knowledge, access with access to other information you can multiply what you can reach that is something that i learned working with icaj uh, i i've never done it before and at the beginning it's um it's not easy because uh, journalists are used to be very secretive so this attitude to share everything and and to write down and publish in a website while you are not ready to publish it's, it's an exercise that you learn to do, but it's not easy at the beginning. 
Yeah, <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Let's talk about your organization because uh, you recently founded Labot, which is a very experimental kind of newsroom because it uses a real robot to deliver news. Um, so can you tell us how it works and why you decided to choose this kind of format? I, I created this with two colleagues because we were really worried about the news ecosystem in Chile. It was in 2017 and uh, legacy media were very happy with their publishing their newspapers, but it was like they didn't see what was happening abroad, that technology has changed everything. And here nobody was doing anything to, to change, to experiment with new technology, to new ways of telling stories. So we decided at first we are going to create a project and we are going to make it work and we are going to show that every journalist can be uh, their own boss and create their own media outlet. So we analyzed many alternatives but we decided that we were really really in love with Politibot that was the Spanish news chatbot about politics and we contacted their owners and we rented them the platform. Uh, and why we like it? Because it's a um, different way to tell stories. Uh, you go di directly where people are nowadays, that by basically their phones. Um, and you communicate with them uh, like in a messaging app, like when we, we, you chat in, a, in WhatsApp with, with your friends. Uh, the, what Labot does is that it mimics that those conversations. So you send short messages and people can interact with Labot um, by pressing buttons. And she uses emojis and GIFs and make jokes. So uh, she recreates this uh, dialogue with people you trust to tell you important stories and step by step. So. Uh, that allows us to explain in a very easy way how complicated things uh, are happening, you know? It's like a game, but she uh, uh, talks about important issues. It's really a, a really good way to engage with your audience because they need to be answering, they need to be interacting with the, with the chatbot. And I think uh, one of the readers um, asked um, about the software. I don't know if you don't, you don't want to go into details, but I'm curious, do you give Labot a series of topics that she has to be knowledgeable about? Because the news change every seconds. How does she know everything? It's not as modern as it looks. People think that she used uh, artificial, artificial intelligence, and actually it's not like that. Um, it's like a decision tree. So you write a story with different alternatives that is very engaging to people because they can choose what path to follow. But it's always uh, one story. So um, we, you send a story like, like when you send an email and that story is there for a few days until you send the next one. We also have um, like an archive when you can retrieve all stories but uh, it's not like you can search. Uh, we decide what to send. And 
and and so the people the, the users think that they are they are taking decisions that make made her like think but everything is pre-designed so part of the craft of this project is um how to design each story the length of each message etc and at the beginning we we had this platform from polytibot it was very difficult uh, hard to use it was a, like us they were journalists building <laughs> gadgets uh, but then we we had a grant from uh, international women in media foundation and we create our own platform uh, much more um, friendly and and it gives us uh, much more detailed analytics and so uh, it's 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 really much better. Interesting. Um, and so using Labot, what story was the most uh, successful uh, that you've seen so far in terms of uh, people's engagement? Uh, and how do you think that that was different compared to a regular article? Let's say the last one that was very successful that was a few months ago. Um, in Chile, there was this guy. Um, very famous, an economist, that was telling people that um, he can make, um, earn a lot of money by changing the, their pension fund investment like every day. So <laughs> it was a huge problem for the economy because there was a lot of money changing from different investment uh, like every week. And he started telling lies, lies about um, the president. It's not like it's our job to defend the president, but I have done a lot of reporting about his business. The Chilean president is a very, very rich businessman. So I have reported a lot, a lot, a lot of how he invests and where his money is. So this guy started to pick some of uh, his conflicts of interest and make big lies about it. And everyone was believing it because actually the president has a history about conflict of interest and bad decisions. But not this. <laughs> this was not true. And the media was ignoring this guy. He was in YouTube. He was in social media. It was a very growing subject. And, and the media was ignoring it. And everybody was talking about it. So it was like, okay, someone has to explain what's the reality behind that, this. So we wrote a story about something that... I knew, but it was hard to explain. Like, where is the president money? What we know, what, what we don't know, why this is not true, etc. And it, it was a big success because it was finally someone is explaining this to us. So Labot job many times is not about uncovering things, but about explaining. I think that there is a lack, uh, at least in Chile. In the US, there is the culture of explainers. Um, in Latin America, and especially in Chile, uh, journalists always have to, to focus on breaking news, but people need context. In this case, uh, just explaining and showing people that our president takes a lot of bad decisions. He has a lot of conflict of interest, but not this. <laughs> this is a guy just lying to you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And uh, so was it also helpful in the COVID-19 pandemic? context where people were overwhelmed with fake news? Yeah. During the pandemic, um, we launched a second project, Labog Checker, because our diagnosis was that there were lots of new 
fact-checking projects that were very important and very useful, but we already know that misinformation and fake news spread much faster than fact-checking. So we need to uh, teach people how to do their own fact-checking, how to uh, have a critical opinion about what they see in WhatsApp and whatever. Our idea was, okay, Labot is very, very, very good explaining things. Why don't we explain people how to fact check? And we work with a professional fact checker <laughs> from an agency, and and we put in a in a chatbot all the knowledge that journalists know, how to how to check if a picture is true, if a video is fake, um, if you receive something. Uh, in your WhatsApp and you don't know if it's true or not. What are the steps you can take to uh, check if this is true or not? And uh, recently we, are, uh, we added a, a new path because there are different paths of uh, explanations with uh, scientific information, like how to know if something is, is serious or not and what are the sources when I can check information about COVID. And, and I think that uh, it might be a very, very useful tool for students and kids and uh, to educate ourselves uh, on how to deal with this uh, huge amount of information that is outside and we not always know how to understand what it means. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's also a problem everywhere in the world. We, would need, <laughs> we need a lab bot everywhere in every language, I think. <laughs> Um, there is also another project that I thought was very important that you did. It's called Documenta, uh, which basically documents uh, human rights violations that started in 2019. Um, and I believe it was because of the protests uh, over uh, the government's uh, decision to increase a subway fare. So something that sound very, I wouldn't say trivial, but surely uh, not so big to, to cause such a big trouble. Can you tell us about the project and the context? The subway fair was just um, the trigger uh, that created this really, really huge social outbreak. Uh, people were on the street during months, every day. It was really, really surprising and also violent. The project is about uh, how the, um, the government reacted to that. And it reacted with a very, very repressive and violent way of uh, controlling the crowd. And many people um, lost their eyes. Hundreds of people have uh, ocular um, lesions. And other people were um, beat. Uh, women were sexually harassed, uh, underage people receive a lot of um, violent uh, aggressions. So we built this website to, to systematize all that information. So it has two parts. One is a database with uh, the judicial cases of those people who, who are re uh, reclaiming human rights. And we, we build this database and it's searchable. So you can find what happened in your city, in your neighborhood. Uh, you can filter by, uh, by sex, by age, and then you can read the excerpts of the um, denounces. And it's terrible. When you read it, it's like, I can't believe this happened. Um, actually, the website, it has like a selection of uh, things that the people said that the police said to them when they detained. And it's terrible. It's, you want to cry when you read it. 
And we also do some investigative reporting, like writing stories about things that um, are not like just cases. And we can look to patterns. So we, we can see, for example, that uh, one of the targets were people with cameras. Because, you know, with social media, everyone who has a camera is a reporter. And also there were reporter and, and graphic reporters. And many of them were attacked by the police because they were filming or taking pictures. We have, I don't know, 50 cases, 90 cases of uh, reporters that were um, attacked. So we, we investigate and we write a story. And, and like that, we have stories about pregnant women that were attacked by the police, kids that were kept for many hours without calling their parents, they were beat. Sometimes they were even undressed. And, and we discovered that some of those practice, like undressing people in the police station in front of everyone, this was the, the, the practice that were common during the dictatorship and it can happen in a democracy. Documenta is documenting those, those things and uh, extracting those patterns from the database and converting them in stories with faces and names well, some, sometimes it's anonym because they are victims, you know, but, uh, or, or they are underage, but telling their stories and, and living there for, for the history, you know, this happened and, uh, and it, it can't happen again. And one thing about this that um, surprised me, it's something that I read on your website, so I will read it for everybody. This is the English translation. It says that unlike what happened during Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship, Today, there are no media or journalists in Chile whose main uh, goal is to systematically investigate the human rights violations committed in, in this case, 2019. Uh, I would think that now there would be more media documented human rights violations than, uh, you know, two decades ago. How's the press freedom situation and what does this um, statement mean? During the dictatorship, there was no justice, no judiciary system, there was no the working. So journalists, uh, in a way, we're doing that, that job. Sometimes they weren't able to pub publish at the moment, but there were these alternative magazines that I told you, uh, and there were many, like, don't, I don't know, four in a small country like this one. So uh, there were many journalists that were expert in covering that, that thing. This time, I think that we were not prepared for this to happen. Nobody was prepared for this to happen. Um, we are... A democracy. We have been a democracy for 30 years, so human rights violations seemed like something from the past. So no, there were no experts in human rights violations in the press. The big media were not doing in-depth reporting about this, not much at least. It was an issue with the protesters because they felt that the media um, didn't want to show what was really happening that the media showed only the violence from the protesters, but they were not showing the repression. So at that time, lots of groups of people create their own media, like in Instagram, Twitter, they were filming every protest, documenting with pictures, that, which is okay, and it was useful. And actually many things that we know now is because of them. But there was no a press that uh, make an effort to report human rights violations. Uh, you can have looters, but this is the force of the state against its citizens. It's not the same. So I think we, we were able to see in that moment 
One of the problems of our press system is that there are too few media outlets, very conservative, and we need more um, diversity in the ecosystem. That's a problem that we have everywhere in the media. Uh, it's an industry issue. But do you think that things have changed? Uh, do you think that the media has acknowledged their problems that they had and are, are they trying to improve? In some way, yes, but the, there was a damage after the social outbreak and the trust in the media decreased dramatically. When you see the trust in different kinds of institutions, uh, the media is in, in the lowest part. There is this study that the Reuters Institute make every year. So this year it was a bit better, but still below the average of the countries. Uh, people don't trust the media. So that's a problem. Uh, they felt for the first time, I think, and I'm talking uh, mostly about television, that they are being judged all the time by the people. And, and that sometimes uh, social media can be even more powerful than TV. So in one sense, it's better, but also journalists are being like point like you're a liar and, and being attacked personally. So the climate is not good. So what would be your solution? Because you're also a professor, um, so you talk to younger journalists every day. How can they um, improve this um, industry and also the profession and everything related to that? Well, I, I, I think that young journalists must know that they probably will not make a career in a big media outlet and probably they should be ready and have the tools to create their own projects. I think that, that this is, in, is the right attitude to have now if you want to be a journalist. And in the long term, uh, it can help to create a new and different media ecosystem. But what I'm worried about, and I don't have a solution, I think that the great danger is not have like a daily press. Here in Chile, uh, there are two newspapers. One stopped printing last year. They, they only have the, the weekend edition. During the week, it's just web. And all the magazines closed. What we saw in 2017 when we created Labot happened. The crisis arrived and it was terrible. Uh, journalists was, were fired. Uh, This, this was important also for the social outbreak because the media was shrinked. It was much weaker than it used to be. I think we need a robust daily press with journalists uh, in every important beat. This is something uh, hard to replace if you don't have big companies because it's expensive. And I think it's important for the society, for the democracy. Uh, and I don't know how to do it because at least in Chile we don't see economic model to sustain that in the long term. On this note, I think our collaboration will continue with Francisca and I hope you will all uh, keep following her work because it's great and ICIJ's work. And um, Francisca, do you have a last greeting for us? No, thank you. It was great to talk with you and it's always great to work with ACID, so thank you. Thanks, everyone. That was our conversation with Francisca Skoknich from the Labat team in Chile. Thanks again to Francisca and to all the journalists who share their stories here on the Meet the Investigators podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sean McGoey. Thanks also to Sheila Lechi for hosting that chat during the most recent ICIJ Insiders event. If you want to get in on the action and become an insider, head to icij.org slash donate. 
If you're sharing this episode on social media, don't forget the hashtag Meet the Investigators. If you have any feedback, please send it our way at social at ICIJ.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.